Hey, good morning, everybody. And, and, and Taylor, thank you for sharing all that with us. Don't you love that little thing on the top of Taylor's head? You know, I, I told him earlier, I said, if I could do that, I would. And, uh, you know, I've just uh, accepted my own personal limitations. And, uh, but anyway, I, I appreciate Taylor so much. And uh, I'm excited, too, as he is about vacation Bible school. I walked in here last night, and I saw all the decorations up. And I thought, you know what? This room needed a little color. And, uh, but I, that's what all these decorations are. So um, there's still time to register your kids and grandkids or whoever for VBS. We're, we're going to have a great, great, great week this week. And, uh, and I hope if you're not a part of it, that you'll be praying for it and that God would use this week to, to really plant some seeds into some young people's hearts that will grow throughout their lifetime. Anyway, hey, it's great to be with you. I, I so appreciate Greg Hafer preaching for me last week. Greg uh, is a good friend of mine. I've known him for years and years, and I always enjoy uh, when he is here and, and is able to share with you. Uh, if you were not able to be here last week and you'd like to watch that sermon, I'd certainly encourage you to. You can do that very easily on your app. You can go to our website and do that. You can even go find it on Facebook. Literally, there are so many ways to access sermons that are preached here at New Life, and I, and I hope you'll take the time to do that. Hey, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 6. As many of you are aware, we are studying our way through the book of Acts, and it's kind of like a part one, part two. We spent a good long time going through the Gospels up to Easter, and now we're into the book of Acts, the start of the church. And what we have seen so far in the book of Acts is there's this uh, great wave, this great movement of God through the city of Jerusalem and the Christians that are joining this church daily. The Bible tells us daily people are coming to know Jesus and being saved. Specifically, what's happening is that people are coming under conviction of their sins, that they played a role in killing God's anointed one, Jesus, and they are telling God, I'm sorry, and they repent of their sins, and they are putting their faith in what? The fact that God's anointed one, Jesus, died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and then he raised to life three days later, and he is alive today. That's what they are believing. And these people are coming to the church in droves. Daily, the church was growing, those who were being saved. But we've also seen that it's becoming a little bit more hazardous to preach about Jesus you get into chapter 4 and chapter 5, it's not as safe as it once was. Peter and John spent a night in prison, didn't they? And they were released the next day. Last week, Greg dealt with the last part of chapter 5, where we saw all 12 apostles get arrested for preaching about Jesus. They had to spend the night in jail. But do you recall what happened in the middle of the night? An angel of the Lord released them. Can you imagine sitting in that cell that night, then all of a sudden an angel of God shows up, releases them out of prison, and they go. I would have hightailed it out of there. But what did they do? They went right back up to the temple and started preaching. The next morning, um, the, the leaders went to retrieve them from prison. Can you imagine the report? Uh, sorry, they're not there. What do you mean they're not there? Uh, they're gone. Well, where are they? And they find them preaching about Jesus. They go and arrest them all over again. And if you recall the story, the, 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 the religious leaders, they were kind of torn on what to do. Some of them wanted to kill the disciples right there and say, we're going to be done with this. Others were like, you know what, maybe if we just leave it alone, it will go away on its own. And so they decided to warn them again to quit talking about Jesus like that worked the first time. And this time they had them flogged, which we've talked about that in here in this series. That is no little punishment. That's not a slap on the wrist. 
But they had him flogged, warned them not to preach about Jesus anymore, and then they released him. At the very end of chapter 5, um, it says that the disciples went away rejoicing, celebrating, not because they were released from captivity, but because they had been counted worthy of suffering for Jesus. Every time I come across this in the New Testament, especially with the apostles here in the beginning pages of Acts, I always have this reoccurring thought. Only a true follower of Jesus could ever feel that way. Find joy and rejoicing in the midst of great suffering, especially suffering at the hands of people who are persecuting you for your faith in Jesus, to be discriminated against, persecuted against because you are a follower of Christ, and to still have joy and to be able to rejoice and praise God through all, only a true follower of Jesus could ever experience that. I was reading an article uh, the other day about the persecution that's happening in the country of China. Many of us are very aware that China, to be a Christian in China is a dangerous thing. It's, it's a heavily persecuted country for Christians. And this article was kind of outlining some of the challenges that Christians are facing uh, over there. And they tell the, the lady, they tell the story of, of, a, of a woman, her name is Goldner. I believe I'm saying that correctly. But Goldner is um, a woman whose husband was arrested for being a Christian back in 2009. She happens to live in one of the most dangerous parts of China for Christians. It's one of the most heavily persecuted parts. For 10 years, her husband's been in prison for his faith. And she's been home with her children trying to raise them all on her own. And, and, and it's just an incredibly challenging, difficult situation for her. I read this article because it was the headline that caught my attention. The, the headline read this. Persecuted believers still suffer in China, but find joy in hardship. And here's this story of Goldner. And what really stands out is she says this, and I'm going to quote her. She said, we have joy, real joy. The joy in this difficult situation is real joy. It must be joy from the Lord. Otherwise, how could we endure the hardship? I believe that the joy she's talking about in China is the exact same kind of joy that we read about in Acts chapter 5 here at the very end where the disciples rejoiced and they were glad. And I'm just wondering, have any of you experienced anything like that in your life? Where I have this unexplainable joy, even through the most this difficult situation, and this joy has to be from God because it's how I keep going. Have you ever experienced anything like that? I believe it was this joy that the disciples were experiencing that made Acts chapter 5 verse 42 possible. Because this is the very next thing that happens. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they, these apostles, never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. It's this joy that was like, it doesn't matter what happens to us God's going to take care of us. And then, you know, bring it on. We can handle this. Only a true follower of Jesus can experience these things. And they just kept on going. It is what kept them going 
day after day because they were living at this point in the life of the church these apostles were living every single day of their life with the threat that at any moment they could be arrested thrown in prison flogged again or even put to death this is the 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 persecution that's hanging over them but at this point it's just them by the time you get to Acts chapter, the end of Acts chapter 5, it's just them that are experiencing this. That's all going to change in Acts chapter 6. Because it won't just be the leadership of the church that's being targeted with persecution. In Acts chapter 6, now the church, which has swelled to over 5,000 members now, they are going to come themselves under an intense persecution. It's going to sweep through the church. And by the time we get done with the end of chapter 7 and into uh, Acts chapter 8, we are going to see that the Christians that make up this church are going to be dragged out of their homes. They're going to be thrown in jail. And, and all because they are followers of Jesus. No, no. Acts chapter 6 marks a turning point in the story of the church. It will never be the same after this. And it all starts on the day that the very first Christian is put to death for his faith. The man's name is Stephen. Ironically, he's not one of the 12 apostles. You would think the first person to die for Jesus would be one of his disciples. It's not. It's a man named Stephen. He will be the very first Christian martyr. He will be the first of what would become over the last 2,000 years, thousands and thousands, perhaps millions of Christians to also die for their faith in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 6 is the record of the first one, the first martyr. And if you would, if you look at verse 8 of chapter 6, we can pick up with Stephen's story right there. It says this, Now Stephen, a man full of grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Now, like I said, Stephen was not one of the original apostles, but yet, here he is doing miracles. Now, I point this out to you. It's a very interesting detail because up to this point, who was doing all the signs and wonders and miracles? It was just the apostles. But here is the first time in the story of the church where somebody other than an apostle was also doing signs and wonders. He was doing miracles. And, and it makes us stop and, and ask this question. How is that possible? Anytime you see a first in Scripture, you go... How is that possible? And I'm going to be honest with you, that question right there, how is that possible, is the foundational question for what has sparked for hundreds of years many different conversations about the Holy Spirit and about special giftings and what the Holy Spirit enables Christians to do back in the Bible days and also what are we able to do through special giftings and abilities in the church today? What do Christians what can we do? This, this conversation has been going on for a very long time. I, I can promise you that I will not be answering those questions to anyone's satisfaction today. I can promise you. In fact, I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I just want you to give them a heads up. We're not going there today. All right? Can you just let them know real quick? I don't want there to be any confusion. We're not, we're not really going there today. But just from the text alone, and we just read the book of Acts, chapter 6, and what do we gather from the text? I draw this conclusion. This is what makes sense to me. It would appear that Stephen received this ability because the apostles themselves had given it to the, him when they laid their hands on him. 
Now, I'm talking about something that happened in the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6. We're not going to read it together, but Stephen was a part of a group of seven men who the apostles had risen up to do a very specific purpose, a specific ministry within the church. And in doing so, they laid their hands on these men, and it seems like something with that activity produced something in Stephen. And, and so Stephen, what his job was this, the special role that, that they wanted him to do, is that the church had grown so rapidly, and the church, one of their foundational ministries was caring for one another, that there were widows in the church that were inadvertently being overlooked by the daily distribution of food. Some, many of these people depended on the church for their survival. And so the apostles were like, this can't happen anymore. And so they found seven very trustworthy men. Stephen is described in the first seven, seven verses of chapter 6 as a man full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom and full of faith. Friends, those are not bad descriptions if anybody leveled that against you. That's Stephen. They recognized him as someone special, and so they raised him up to go do this job, and they laid their hands on him, which was like an anointing, an equipping. We are commissioning you to do this work, and they entrusted it to him. But it seems like, at least this is just me thinking this through, it seems like through that process the, the apostles gave him some more because he was able to do signs and wonders and miracles and the the Bible doesn't tell us what those miracles were it doesn't give us a list of what he was doing but signs and wonders is the same word that the Apostles were using for themselves I can speculate a little bit Could, is it possible And I think it's probable that there were times where these widows that he was in charge of would come and he was ministering to them and some of them had afflictions and Stephen would pray with them and they would be healed I think that's highly likely I don't see why that wouldn't happen. Could it also be, and again, this is complete speculation on my part. Was there ever a time when Stephen was overseeing the distribution of food and they didn't have enough food to give to everybody who needed it? Do you think maybe, just maybe, there was a time that Stephen took the last few pieces of bread and said, God, I don't know what to do. You're going to have to do something. I've got to feed all these people. And then all of a sudden, it just kept multiplying over and over and over. I don't know if that happened, but Jesus did that a few times. Could it have happened? Signs and wonders, miracles, I, I don't know. Stephen had the ability to do these things. And so we know that he was a man of God, full of the Holy Spirit, recognized as from the apostles as a man whom they could trust, who they could put in charge. The, the group of apostles, the 12, laid their hands on him, and the next thing we know, signs and wonders are coming from him. But then this happens. Look at verse 9. This is the very next thing. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Stephen may not have been one of the original 12 apostles, but he was probably just like them in this regard. Everywhere he went, he could not stop talking about Jesus. As he interacted with people in the church and people who weren't a part of the church, he talked about Jesus all the time. And 
this has aroused some suspicion. Obviously, there was conversation between Stephen and these members of this one synagogue, and they began to challenge him. In fact, it grew to harassment. And, and the Bible seems to tell us that even the combined wisdom of all the guys in this one synagogue was not enough to trap Stephen. It was not enough to get him to say something blasphemous, and they could not. Their combined knowledge could not stand up to what Stephen was saying, the wisdom from the Lord. And this was a frustrating thing. And I, I think about that. I'm, I was studying through this passage, and I was reminded of something that happened during Jesus' ministry back in the Gospels. And I'm going to bring it to your attention this morning. If you were to go back sometime and look at Matthew chapter 10, there's a very special thing that happens between Jesus and his disciples. He sends them out on a short-term evangelistic mission. And he's going to send them out. And, and this is when Jesus says to them, Guys, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. You heard that famous phrase before? This is where Jesus said that. I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves. And then he gave them in that moment the authority to do two things. To drive out demons and to perform miracles. As they were going about their journeys two by two, they were going to need this special equipping. And Jesus gave it to them. Drive out demons and do miracles. And so Jesus is preparing them for their journey that they're going to be gone for a while. And he tells them about this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And he begins to tell them you're going to be thrown in jail and you're going to be arrested. You're going to be flogged. And all of this is going to happen. Yeah, sign me up for that mission strip. And then when you get down to verse 19, Jesus says this to them. When you get arrested, do not worry about what to say or how you're going to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for, you will not be, for it will not be you speaking, but the Holy Spirit of your Father speaking through you. It will be God speaking through you. The Spirit will enable this to happen. I believe that this is the exact thing that is happening to Stephen. What did we just read in Acts chapter 6, verse 10 on all this oppression? They could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. They were literally they were arguing God, and they couldn't stand up to it. It was the Lord speaking through Stephen, and they just had no answers for it. And I'm going to tell you something. I believe that God still works this way today. I believe that there are times that the Spirit gives us the words in the right moment at the right time to say what needs to be said that God wants you to say. Have you had that experience? There has been a few times, a handful of times in my life when I'm talking to somebody or, or there's, there's a moment and we're talking about kingdom things. We're talking about the church. And as we're talking, something will come out of me and it even, it, it surprises me. Like, where did that come from? Sometimes I say things that surprise me that I know is not from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> that was not the Lord. But, but there are other times, a handful of times, where it really made me think, I don't know that was me. I think the Lord just gave me what to say in that moment. I believe God still does that. I believe the Holy Spirit still works that way. And I believe that this is exactly what's happening with, with Stephen. And so these guys can't stand up to it, and so what they do is they, 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 uh, they, they're going to take it up a level. The, the Bible says that the guys that were doing this to Stephen 
were from a synagogue, a synagogue of the freedmen. We don't know a whole lot about it. We do know that there were plenty of synagogues around Jerusalem and all throughout Israel. And, and this is one of those synagogues. But what I want to point out to you and why I think this detail is in, recorded in Scripture is because this is the first time that uh, op, uh, uh, opposition to Christianity is coming from another group of people. You know, up to this point, it was always the highest religious leaders of the land that were oppressing. They went after Jesus. They've been attacking the apostles. They've been throwing him in jail. and fly. It's always been the very highest level of leadership in, uh, of Israel. Why were they involved? It's because the apostles kept preaching in the temple courts. It was in their backyard. They were forced to deal with it. This is like, think of it like this. It's like that might be the highest level of leadership. The people that are coming after Stephen are a couple steps down from them. This opposition is coming from somewhere else. So Stephen, in his work and his interaction with people, he came across these guys, and this started to happen. Well, that, that was frustrating to them, and so they're going to take their persecution to the next level. Look at verse 11. Then they, these are these guys from this synagogue of the freedmen, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They, they produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking about this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw his face like the like they saw his face was like the face of an angel. I don't know what that looks like. Do you know what the face of an angel looks like? I don't. But evidently, there was something about Stephen. Was there a glow about him? Was there this massive calm about him? Was there an expression on his face? There was something physical that they noticed about him in this moment, and they related it to like, well, it's kind of like the face of an angel. I don't know. There's questions I have. I don't know what that means exactly. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? So you have these guys from this one synagogue. They raise up false witnesses. They drag Stephen to the highest religious leaders. Now we're back to the temple again, and they're questioning Stephen now. What's happening to Stephen? Does it remind you of anybody? Is there anything familiar about this? If you're thinking, that sounds a lot like what happened to Jesus, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Jesus was arrested under what? False accusations. There was false witnesses that, bear, that bore false testimony. And he was challenged by the religious leaders. And they asked him the same questions that they asked Stephen. Are these charges against you true? There's a, many similarities between what's happening to Stephen and what happened to Jesus. But I, I love this part. We're not going to read all of it together. But they asked Stephen, are these charges true? And Stephen's like, hand me the mic. He uses this opportunity to preach. And what's going to happen is, over the next 52 verses of chapter 7, Stephen's going to preach. Now, we're not going to read these 52 verses together this morning, but I'm going to trust that you're going to go read Stephen's sermon, um, his answer to that question, are these charges against you true? True. I, I'm going to trust that you're going to read that on your own. It's powerful. But I'm going to summarize it here for you. Stephen basically is like, give me the microphone, and he's like, I'm going to tell you guys something. He's going to take him through a history of the Old Testament. 
He's like, I'm going to tell you guys a story. And we're going to start this story with Abraham. You remember Abraham? Of course they know Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. And God said, I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you. And, and, and Abraham had many sons. And, and his family grew large. You know, Abraham was the, the father of Isaac. Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. And we know them today as the 12 tribes of Judah. And he begins to unpack this Old Testament history. You can just walk through the story. If you're looking for uh, somewhere in the scripture of kind of a succinct um, recap of the entire Old Testament, it's Stephen's sermon. He walks them through this. He goes, and, and they're like, yeah, we know this. We know this. And God was going to raise up a mighty nation out of this family, but they were going to be made to be slaves. But, then, but to, before that started, Joseph... One of Jacob's sons, we know him as Joseph with the coat of many colors. He was hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, into Egypt, but God prospered him. He became the second highest leader in Egypt, and he saved all the people when he created a plan to survive the seven-year famine. But then later, people forgot about Joseph, but God's people began to grow. And then after several hundred years, they grew strong and mighty in numbers, and they cried out to God, and so God raised up Moses. And Moses went in and rescued them from Pharaoh, and he took them out into the wilderness. And that great miracle of crossing the Red Sea on dry ground, Stephen's reminding them of all these details. God gave through Moses the, the, the law and the tabernacle, and they, many of them died there in the wilderness. But then Joshua took over, led them into the promised land. This is the land that you gave them. And we saw through history, King David was a great king, and, and Solomon, his son, built the temple for God. And Stephen's just walking through the Old Testament. I would imagine these Sanhedrin, these guys were going, where is he going with this? We all, of all the people in the world, we know this history better than anybody. Where is he going? But see, this little history lesson has a purpose. Because as he's talking about it, he's also pointing out that all throughout God's history with Israel, all the times God's people failed him, how they turned to idol worship, and how they turned their backs on God, and how they rebelled, and how Israel always had this knack of killing God's anointed ones. And then, Stephen sums up his sermon. Basically, I'm going to summarize it for you. He goes, guys, God has always been working a plan over here. And this is a mighty awesome plan. He had a great vision. But over here, all the people that should have been a part of God's plan... All they did was work against God every step of the way through rebellion and idol worship and, and, and killing God's people. And Stephen's like, guess where you guys fall in this conversation? All of you are in this room that he's talking to the Sanhedrin. You're just like our forefathers. At every turn, you've resisted God. At every turn. You have been on, you are on the wrong side of history. You are no different than they are. And if you jump down to verse 51, this is how Stephen wraps up his sermon. He says, you stiff-necked people. For the record, I have never wrapped up a sermon with those words before. I have never looked and said, you stiff, but that's how he does. So he tells them this whole thing, he goes, you stiff-necked people. And he says, your heart and ears are still uncircumcised. That doesn't make a bit of sense to us today, but back in this day, when Stephen said it, you could not have said something more insulting to a group of religious leaders than that. For reasons that are still lost on me, God chose the sign of circumcision as the marker of his family. 
Kids, you can ask your parents all about that on the way home, okay? They'll be happy to explain it to you, I promise. I'm sorry. On the same day, VBS starts for no less. All right. So for whatever reason, that was the mark. It was a physical mark that identified God's family. So when Stephen says, you have uncircumcised ears and hearts, what he's basically saying is this. Physically, you look like a child of God. But where it really matters, in your heart, you're far from him. And your ears, you don't listen to God. And you're no different than our ancestors. You don't listen to God, you're not a part of his plan, and your hearts are far from him. This is why this would have been the most insulting thing you could say to a Jewish religious leader in this day. And Stephen said it, and he called him stiff-necked at the same time. He goes on to say, you are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. Bottom line of Stephen's sermon. You are rebelling against God. You right now are making the same mistakes that our ancestors did all throughout history. But this time you've really done it because this time you killed God's anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Oh, you're in it for it now. If you look at verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. Oh, I think this was a very intense moment. That gnashing of teeth is like, that's that. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing there at the right hand of God. Is Stephen actually seeing Jesus at that moment? Possibly. Is he having such an intense vision that God is giving him as he prepares for death that he sees heaven? Oh, what is going on here exactly? But there's this moment in all this intensity that he looks up and he sees Jesus. Now this is not making him very happy, the religious leaders, because what is Stephen's message? What has been the apostles' message? Jesus Christ was God's chosen one who the religious leaders killed. He was put in a tomb. Three days later, he rose to life. He's alive today. And right now, as you guys are gnashing your teeth at me, I'm looking at Jesus, alive and well with God. Oh, no, they, they didn't want to hear that. Look at verse 57. At this, they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. Are we back in elementary school? They're doing this. No, 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 no. You can imagine. That's what they're doing. No, 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 no. They don't want to hear it. And then it turns very violent. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. And terrible way to die. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. They took off their outer cloaks and they laid them and basically Saul, hold these. Saul was in charge. This is the first time in Scripture 
we're introduced to this man named Saul. And, and I want you to remember that name because many of you here today, you've read this story. You know about Saul. Some of you, though, I know, you're walking through Acts with us for the very first time in your life. And I want you to remember this guy named Saul because nobody in this moment would have known that this Saul, who was giving approval for Stephen's murder, nobody knew it at the time, but he's introduced to us as the most fierce persecutor of the church who would later, and we're going to read about this in, in just a couple chapters, he would later have a moment where he witnesses Jesus himself, have a complete change of heart, repent of his sins, and go on to be a follower of Jesus who would become the greatest evangelist in the New Testament, who would be responsible for writing 13 of the New Testament letters. Nobody knows it here. At this moment, he's a scoundrel. But remember that name, Saul. Verse 59, while they were stoning, stoning him, so they're pelting him with rocks until he dies, Stephen had the awareness to pray this. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing. While Stephen is, this blows my mind, while Stephen is being murdered, he, he prays for the forgiveness of those that are pelting him with rocks. Who else did that? Jesus did that. As Jesus hung on the cross and he was moments from death, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The day that Stephen was martyred for his faith, it does mark a turning point in the life of the church. It would never be the same after that. Here's what happens starting that very day, and this will end our scripture reading for today. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Do you understand this? They all ran away. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Saul goes after him. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. I tell you, not once in my entire life have I had to stand in Stephen's shoes. Have you? Stared death in the eye for your faith? Never had to do that. There have been times, and I know you have as well, that we've been in a situation where it would have been much easier to not talk about Jesus, but we did anyway, because that was what was needed in the moment. But I, I've never stood in Stephen's shoes. I've never had to do this. But what I take away from Stephen's story, and what really impresses me so much as a follower of Christ, is his passion. I'm impressed by his boldness. I am impressed <clears throat> by his faith, and I'm not meaning his belief in the Lord. I'm talking about his faith that gives him the ability to say, I trust God and everything's going to be okay. Equally with his passion and his boldness and his faith, I'm, I'm equally impressed by his ability to forgive. Even mo the moment of his death, forgiveness was on his mind. I, 
I, I, I think about these things and these questions come up into my mind and I, I'll pose to you the question that overlays my own life, the question I ask for myself. It's this, is it possible today, is it possible for a Christian today to be filled up with the Holy Spirit so much that we could have this same kind of passion that Stephen had, same kind of boldness, same kind of, uh, of, of forgiveness, same kind of faith, is it possible for us to experience the same levels of it that Stephen had? Is it possible for us to have his level of passion? You know, it's that passion that says, regardless of the setting or who may come up against me, I'm going to live out every day of my life for Jesus Christ. That kind of passion in their daily walk with Jesus. Is it possible for us today to have that? Yes. And I think about his boldness. It's a boldness that daily has this, this kind of persona with it that I care more about seeing someone come to know Jesus Christ than I do about what other people are going to think of me. Is it possible to have that level of boldness as a Christ follower today? Yes. I think about his faith. It's a faith that goes, I can lose everything I've got, but the Lord is with me. The Lord is with me, and that is more than enough. And if I've got the Lord with me, I don't need anything else, and they can take it all, and I can have nothing. But the Lord is with me. He'll take care of me. Is it possible for you and I today to have that level of faith? Yes, it is. When it comes to forgiveness... Specifically forgiveness, a subject that, that touches all of us in different ways. Is it possible to have the level of forgiveness that says, even though I've been terribly wronged and mistreated and hurt and abused, and even though the person who wronged me has never acknowledged it or ever said they're sorry and they may not even be alive, can I still find it? in my heart to forgive them because Christ has forgiven me of so much. Is it possible for a Christian today to have that level of forgiveness? And the answer is yes. And the reason why I can say that so confidently is because the same Holy Spirit that lived inside of Stephen and was with Stephen every day of his life is the exact same Holy Spirit that lives in us and is with us every day of our lives. There was nothing that Stephen had in these attributes of passion and boldness and faith and forgiveness that are unique only unto him. We could have them at the same levels in our own life. And my prayer is simply this, that Stephen's passion and boldness and faith and forgiveness, and I would even say even his death, inspires you and me to live for Jesus more passionately than we currently are, with more boldness than we currently have, with more faithfulness than we right now express, and more forgiveness that's more in tune with, Lord, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. I'm okay with you. Stephen's story inspires me a lot makes me want to be a better christian i hope it does you too